So uh, we, we had uh, this thing happen this week. Um, we, we have a couple of boats going with us to summer camp for the, the youth this week. And one of the other guys who's bringing his boat, uh, it, it just so happened that he and his kids were up on Friday at the lake and they're driving around Lake San Antonio, not like Lopez because Lopez, okay. Uh, and, and Southern San Antonio, and they're, and they're driving along this shore over here and they're looking and he goes, hey, Jana, who's his little girl? And he goes, look at the cows. And Jana's all, oh, look at the cow, dead cows. You know, and he's all, yeah. And he drives right inside this white buoy. Now, if you don't drive a boat, a white buoy means don't go here. There's no water over here. There's a right up on a sandbar. So he bent his uh, propeller and the shaft, so we got one less boat going to camp. So if you have a boat and you... Will you let me? I bet you John Ward would drive it. Oh, Really? Come and talk to me when we're done. You guys have full ballast sacks, don't you? Oh, man. We'd be out 6 a.m. every morning. Forget I said anything to you. Come and talk to me. So uh, Friday, Friday was my birthday. Um, I'm 15, no. Uh, and this, I, I love cookies. Somebody, and so some, this morning someone gave me some cookies. and remi- They didn't give me this. Okay, this, Someone gave me this years ago. But it reminded me of this. And so I pulled it out because you cannot beat the cookie monster. Okay. <laughs> See, you just can't beat the cookie monster. So everyone, when I need a smile, I'll kind of pull out the Cookie Monster and, you know, kind of go with that. But anyway, uh, I was telling you last week, I have like 300 some odd friends on Facebook. You know what the worst part about having 300 friends on Facebook is? Your birthday. Because <laughs> I get a notification every time someone sends me something. So it's like, I get like 7 a.m., I got like 35, 40 of these. It's like, oh, okay, delete, 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 delete. And then, because you don't want to respond to all, I'm, I'm codependent, but not that bad, right? So I don't want to respond to all of them, so... So I get done, and like an hour later, I got like another 30. I'm like, oh, no, this is how the day's going to go. And the delete them, you know, come back at noon. I got another 40. I'm like, dang it. So it's, it's terrible. Hey, thank you, by the way, if you said happy birthday to me on Facebook. <laughs> yeah, I, just, I, I just deleted them, but whatever. Why don't you guys stand me for reading of God's word? This is 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 15, and it says this. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. Let's pray. Father, this morning I ask that we would be a people who live uh, for you, that we would understand uh, the crucifixion of what we look at today, uh, and that we would then live our lives more in light of what you call us to live, people who live by faith and trust you. Amen. Have a seat. If you have a Bible, you can open to John chapter 19. That's where we're going to be today. Uh, if you are new, uh, we are just going right to the book of John. We've been in it for almost a year. We've got four weeks left, including this week. And today we get to the crucifixion. So if it's your first time here, great week to pick. Okay, I'm just, it is a good week to pick, but you know, wow. Okay, uh, so what we just saw so far last week, uh, you saw Jesus' betrayal by Judas. You saw his false trials. You saw his sentencing to death. This week, we will see his death and actually his burial. In today's thinking, we look back and we see the crucifixion, and we think that's an anomaly. You know, because if someone was crucified today, you know, like down at the Walmart or something, it would make the papers and be on the news. People would actually say something about that. But in this time and day, when Jesus was crucified, it didn't get a lot of press because people got crucified by the truckloads at this point. At one point, when Rome was at war, they actually, historians tell you that they averaged 500 crucifixions a day for almost three months. 
Okay? So, the people of this day, this is a common occurrence. It's not something that's out of the ordinary. It's a daily part of life in Rome. So, if you have a Bible, John chapter 19, starting in verse 16, this is where we start. It says, Finally, Pilate, that's one of the Roman rulers, handed him, that is Jesus, over to them to be crucified. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus. Carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. Here they crucified him uh, and with him two others, one on each side and Jesus in the middle. This fulfills Isaiah 53.12, which says Jesus will be killed with transgressors. Uh, verse 19, Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. The chief priests of the, of the Jews protested to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but that this man claimed to be king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes. These are probably at this point his outer garments and his coat, dividing them into four shares, one for each of them, with the undergarment remaining. This garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who gets it. This happens so that the scripture might be fulfilled, which said, Psalm twenty-two, eighteen: they divided my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. So this is what the soldiers did. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother. Now, what's his mother's name? Mary, yeah, yeah. Anybody who never goes to church, you know, Mary is the name of Jesus' mom. And it says, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. I also find this quite interesting. It seems like everybody in this day was named Mary. You know, it's like, how do you keep him straight? I, I don't know. Uh, when Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, that's John, he said to his mother, dear woman, here is your son, and to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, this disciple took her into his home. And that is the account, essentially, of Jesus being crucified. It's very simple. It is very plain. John does not give a whole lot of details about uh, Jesus' beard being plucked out, you know, blood flowing, bleeding everywhere. There's a lot of facts that John actually leaves out because, once again, I believe it is the last gospel that was written. So John's like, you know, there's a lot of other accounts. They cover these things. John is the least dramatic, and it reads more like a newspaper account without emotion. And John shows nothing unusual, again, in this account, as thousands of people have been crucified before Jesus. People would be flogged, they have their flesh ripped off of their bones, and they have to carry their own crossbar to their place of execution. A post would usually be in the ground, then these soldiers would nail them to this crossbar. They would set them up on the cross, nail their ankles to that cross. They would have some charges listed above the heads of the people who were crucified, such as king of the Jews, traitor, thief, uh, designer of pop-up ads for the internet, you know, those kind of things be placed above you. Jesus looks down from his cross at this point, and he honors his mother by making sure the commands of God were fulfilled and she was taken care of. Nothing unusual in the crucifixion account. Next section concerns his death. Verse 28. Later, knowing that all was now completed, and so the scriptures would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. This refers to Psalm 69, verse 21. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. Now, this isn't mean. At this, this was also very common during the day. This is diluted wine. It was cheap. It kept very well. The soldiers are probably drinking it at the foot of the cross. This is when, it had received, when he had received the drink, Jesus said, It is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Now it was a day of preparation, and the next day was to be a special Sabbath. Now it's a special Sabbath because Passover had just taken place, so the Sabbath after Passover was very special to the Jews. Because the Jews did not want the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath, they asked Pilate, like good religious people, to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. 
How nice of them. The soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus and then those of the other. But when they came to Jesus and found he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced his side with the spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water, meaning that they pierced his heart so that blood and water actually flowed out. The man who saw it, that would be John, has given testimony and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth and he testifies so that you also may believe. These things happen so that the scripture to be fulfilled. Psalm 34 verse 20, not one of his bones will be broken. And as another scripture says, Zechariah 12.10, they will look on the one they have pierced. Nothing unusual except actually in its horror. They would typically take seven inch long spikes and they would drive these through your wrist and your ankles as they put you on this cross because crucifixion was about a slow death. It was supposed to be humiliating. So it was about a slow suffocation. And so every time you wanted to breathe, you would have to pull yourself up like this. Now, I, if you get my email update, you know a, a while ago I actually stuck a, a staple in my finger. Anybody ever stick a staple in your finger? Hurts like crazy. Hurts even worse pulling it out. Okay? Imagine though, you've got spikes just like that through your wrists. And every time you want to breathe, you've got to up and down to breathe. Now, to make this take longer, sometimes they would take a little seat and place it underneath the buttocks of the person who was on the cross so they could sit and just suffocate even longer. It was a brutal death. Now, because the Sabbath was coming, a, a holy day, they wanted the bodies down sooner. It's like uh, if we would crucify people today and we'd stick them up in Waller Park and the next day's like the 4th of July, we'd be like, oh, take them down so the kids don't have to see them. Break their legs. So that's what we would do. We'd take them down so it's nice and pleasant again after the people are gone. So and also if the soldiers got bored, time constraints, they would break legs so you couldn't lift yourself up any longer. Which I also think is very interesting because when you're pressed for time at this point because, you know, you're killing God, you don't want to ruin their upcoming religious holiday or anything like that. So they break these men's legs next to Jesus, but Jesus is already dead. Simple. The simple account completely in line with how people died in crucifixion. Here's the burial. Verse 38. Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jews. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. And what's also interesting is these are two very religious men, and by touching Jesus' dead body, they just became unclean for the upcoming religious holiday. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds, taking Jesus' body. The two men wrapped it with spices and strips of linen. This was in accordance with Jewish burial customs. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden, a new tomb, in which no one had ever been laid, because it was the Jewish day of preparation, and since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. His burial is also very common as well. In Isaiah 53, it says that Jesus would be laid in a rich man's tomb, which he was. A, a tomb that is cut out of rock was very expensive. And so they laid Jesus in a borrowed tomb. I mean, Jesus could never actually afford something like that. They wrap his body in the common Jewish custom very tightly with a bunch of spices, keeps the smell down. It looks probably a lot like a mummy at this point. And John's account clearly shows Jesus was dead. A, a sword is thrust through his heart just in case you had any questions. John's eyewitness account, this is exactly what happened. Trial, death, burial, nothing unusual. Nothing unusual. And I want you to see two things in this. The first one is this, the historical fact of Jesus' death. I, I became a believer when I was 17 years old. Now, I, I had heard before that that Jesus died, Jesus died, Jesus died. Yeah, I got that. I understand. I, I believe, you know, Jesus died. But really, what's the big deal? Everybody dies. Some people die quiet and easy. Some people die very hard and painful deaths. I don't know if that's ever been you. You hear Jesus died, you know, what's the big deal? It's, it's a fact. It's like Washington was president and men walked on the mood and Napoleon was short. Okay, and Jesus died. I, I got that. You believe it. You know, it, it, it's a fact. But the second thing you have to understand is why. 
he died. Because that changes everything. It changes everything. The fact is death, but what does it mean? If you have a Bible, open to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, where John speaks about the facts. Paul then comes and he interprets these facts and tells us what happened. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 17. This is what it means. Wait till you get there. It says, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of human wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the message of the cross, that's crucifixion, is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, Isaiah 29, 14, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. He then goes on to ask some questions. Where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him. God was pleased the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demanded miraculous signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. Paul says, when you look at the account of the crucifixion, what you get out of it is going to kind of be dependent upon what you're looking for, your perception of what you see. Because there's only two ways to see the crucifixion. Those who look at it through man's reason say, oh, well, Jesus was a dude and he got killed. That, that's very sad, but, but no big deal. People look at the cross and, and where we say that was God, they say some poor guy died. They don't see anything but a dead 30-year-old Jew hanging on a cross. Where we see it as a salvation of the world they see our perspective as something like the easter bunny or santa claus or a used car salesman they, they just don't exist you know that kind of thing and they take all the information you comprehend and they say god is like this and they place god in a box this is how god's got to be unfortunately a god that fits in your box is no god at all you know, God is not going to do miracles to just to prove himself to you. God is not going to answer all of your questions because God wants you to live and trust him in faith. Paul says the world in its collective wisdom cannot comprehend, codify, or shrink wrap who God is. God cannot fit fully in the brain of a person. My three-pound brain cannot comprehend the totality of God. So to think that I could, through conjecture or anything, figure out who God is is complete folly on my part. It is complete foolishness to think I could actually do that. The only way for you and I to understand God is for God to reveal himself to us. God must reveal himself. We can philosophize all we want but get no closer to heaven because God has to reveal himself to us. And that is what he does through Paul and that is what he was doing at the cross. Enduring scorn and shame, God shows himself in the crucifixion of Christ. He says, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. It's an issue of faith. We cannot know God apart from this issue of faith. Now, leave your finger in 1 Corinthians. If you want to try and follow me around here for a minute, you can do that. But leave your finger right where it's at because we're going to come back there at the end. Hebrews 11.1 1 says, Now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. There are certain things that you and I cannot prove, and faith goes beyond science and beyond what people can actually understand. Reason says, I see Jesus dead. That's what I see. And faith comes and says, I see a whole lot more than that. 
Faith looks at an event. It sees through and beyond an event to God behind the event. Not just in the crucifixion, but in all of our lives as well. When anything comes up and hits us and bombards our lives, we, if you have faith, see through that event to the God behind the event to know that He is doing something and He has all these things in His hand. That God is in control. All we need to know of God is found in Jesus and His death and His life. Now, I'm going to field test this with you in, in just a second because all of what we know of God, we call these, these are His attributes, the attributes of God. And when you think about God, we say, okay, these things are, are who He is. And so we're going to look at some attributes of God and see if we see those in the cross of Christ and what Jesus did, okay? Attributes of God, eternality, okay? God is eternal. God stands apart from time. God is a constant, eternal present. And so if you and I, we sin against an eternal God, what type of sin is that? Eternal, exactly. What kind of compensation does an eternal sin require? Eternal. How do you make that payment? Well, either we pay for it eternally, or God, who is eternal, steps into time, becomes one of us, and is punished in our place, meeting the eternal requirements for sin. You see God's eternality at the cross. God's sovereignty. God's sovereignty. God exists over everything and bends all things to His will. Do you see that in the death of Jesus? God bending all circumstances to completely fulfill what he has promised. Totally. If you read Genesis to Malachi and you see every prophecy that's in there about who Jesus is, six, seven, eight, nine hundred years before Jesus is even born, everything is bent to God's will. Psalms, Zechariah, Isaiah, Ezekiel, everything. He's going to be crucified between two thieves. I don't think that you can be like, well, you're sentenced to death. Okay, but, but send two thieves with me, will you? That doesn't happen. You know, he, he, it, it says that um, he, he's going to be laid in a rich man's tomb. You're dead. You have no control over that. Uh, Passover in the book of Exodus uh, is all referring, this Passover lamb that is killed, referring to how Christ is going to come and die. You know, this Passover lamb. When does Jesus die? Passover. Coincidence? No, not at all. The night Jesus betrayed, he crosses the Kidron Valley to go to the Garden of Gethsemane where he's going to pray and where he's going to actually be betrayed. Now, the Kidron Valley has a river that runs through it. Now, at the temple, when you'd slaughter all these animals during Passover, the blood would run out the back of a temple. You know what it would run into? The river in the Kidron. So when Jesus crosses this little river going to the Garden of Gethsemane, he steps over a river full of blood that represents exactly what he came to do. Die for men's sins. It's amazing. It's amazing. Uh, God's mercy... God's mercy. Mercy is God not giving us what we deserve. The penalty for sin is death. In Genesis, God says, you sin, you die. That's how it goes. Cause, effect. Romans 6.23 says, the wages of sin is death. It's the way it is. So when Jesus comes and he dies for my sin, why was I not given death? Mercy. Mercy. God can't just look at sin and say, okay, that death thing, well, I changed my mind. Because that'd be sin. And God will not sin just because he loves us. Something had to take place. God's redemption for us means he died in our place for our sin, meeting the requirements of holiness, justice, and truth. Then he forgives us and he gives us mercy and grace and forgiveness, all shown in the cross of Christ. Everything culminates at the cross of Christ. Uh, The omniscience of God, that God knows everything. I mean, do you see the complete and total knowledge of God at the cross of Christ? Of course you do. Did Jesus die for all my sins, past, present, and future? Of course he did. How many of my sins were in the future when he died? All of them. He died for the sins I haven't even committed yet. All the ones I'm too busy doing these sins now that I haven't gotten to these yet. He died for those. 
It's amazing. First uh, Peter three eighteen says, "For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God." Romans four twenty five. He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. Romans six ten. The death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. Jesus died for our sins. Reason says, oh, look at that, he must have died because you want to crucify bad guys. And yet faith looks at it and says, he didn't die for his sins, he died for mine, for mine. Did Jesus die for the sins I will commit tomorrow? Yes. And when did Jesus do that? 2,000 years ago. How could Jesus do that 2,000 years ago for things I haven't done yet? Because God has complete and total knowledge. And he knows what I'm going to do. Colossians 2, 13 through 15 tells us that God nailed all of our sins to the cross with Christ. How about this? How about God's anger? Do you see God's anger at the cross? Yeah, totally. The anger of God. You see the Father's anger at sin. And you and I, we take sin so lightly because we live all in the middle of it and we keep doing it and it feels so familiar to us. But God takes it very seriously. God has never tasted sin. Sin is a declaration of war against Him. Does sin make God angry? Absolutely. You see this in the cross of Christ. Isaiah 53, 10 and 12 says it was the Lord's will to crush Him to make him suffer. It says he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors for he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Everything we need to know about God is not in man's conjectures and opinions in the sky. It is about Christ and his death and his life. That is what we need to know. If you and I today were to walk to the cross and we would walk underneath the cross, it wouldn't look like God. We look and say, oh, look, that, that's God. He must be dying for Aaron's sins 2,000 years from now. That must be him conquering our enemies of Satan, sin, and death to give Aaron the new life that, that he truly needs. We'd say, oh, look at that you know, poor Jewish guy. I mean, it doesn't look like anything more is going on. Yet Isaiah 45:15 says, truly you are a God who hides himself, O God and Savior of Israel. I mean, God at times purposely hides himself. And do you see that at the cross? Yeah, you totally do. But with faith, you see him. You see God's throne, and it looks like a cross. You see a crown on a king's head, and yet it looks like a crown of thorns that are pushed into his skull. A king has an army, and you see Jesus' army of disciples who are running away and women weeping at the foot of the cross. A king is dressed in fine robes, and Jesus hangs there naked on this cross. And a king declares victory. And what does Jesus do on the, on the cross? wins victory. He is a king. In the cross of Christ, Jesus dies. My sins are forgiven, and Jesus is completely victorious. You know, it doesn't look like he is winning. He's betrayed, and he is beaten, and he is denied. He is mocked. He is scourged. He is, he is set between these two thieves as he dies. He carries his own cross. He is crucified, and he dies so quickly from being beaten so brutally that he doesn't even need to have his legs broken. And through human reason, it doesn't look like victory. But through faith, we say, God won. Love wins. Victory is secured. We are told in 2 Corinthians 5, 7, we live by faith, not by sight. Paul says, we live in this upside-down world. Everything is crazy. The weak are strong. You have life through his death. The simple confound the wise. The last become first. And that's what we believe, that nothing is as it seems. Nothing. God is holy and God is different. He is not at all like us. And that is so true. Why I believe scripture is true? Because no one would make this up. Nobody. No one would say, we made up God. It would not be a 30-year-old, homeless, unemployed, single God who lived in Gary and was strung up in a tree. 
That, that is not who we would make a world religion out of. But our God comes different. And he looks like nobody thinks he should because he hides himself and he loves us. God comes hiding in the cross. And the question becomes, where do we get faith? Where do we get this reason to believe? Paul says this faith comes from somewhere, to see Jesus victorious in all this. Romans ten seventeen he says, Consequently, faith comes from hearing the message, and the message is heard through the word of Christ. Your faith is going to be built by hearing the scriptures. You look at the promises in the Old Testament. That's supposed to build your faith. You see Jesus' words and his life and his actions and how he lives that build your faith. It's why you and I both need to be listening to preaching and teaching and studying scripture and hanging out with other believers who can push us further on in the faith so that we can grow and hear God's word. Faith is birthed and built through hearing God's word. Faith is like a muscle that grows hard when you don't use it. And the further you get from God's word, and I think the further you get from God's people, the less faith you're going to start to have. And you will start to say things like, well, did Jesus really win? Does God really care about me? And your faith begins to waver. But faith comes through hearing the word of God, where we do not see things just as they are, but we see through things to God behind them. If you only look at this world and what you see, you're going to be depressed. It is why you will all lock your doors tonight when you go to bed. It is why you're driving down the freeway at 55 miles an hour and you still lock your doors just in case someone might get in. It's crazy. It seems like everything is doomed. But nothing is as it seems. Nothing. God works through the margins. God works in the sides. He works through faith. He is always doing His work. Now, if you left your finger in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, open back up there. Because this is the place where Paul says, you know, people think I'm a fool. But this is God's irony and God's humor. Paul says, you too, we are all fools. 1 Corinthians 1.26, Paul continues and he says, Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. This is to be a believer, to be a Christian. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Paul says, you're not that bright. They're like, some of you, that might be some news for you, but, but you're not that bright. Others are like, yeah, I don't even use my turn signal. I know I'm not that bright. You know? He says, not many, were in, not many were influential. None of you are that important. You're welcome. There you go. You know, just take it down a few notches. God loves you, but no one else knows who you are. We could all walk out, get hit by the same bus, and no one would know but the bus driver. That's, that's kind of what he says. He says, not many were of noble birth. We're not Kennedys or Rockefellers or Hendrixes or Beatles. You know, we come from alcoholics and broken homes. We have relatives who think that bank robbing or playing the lotto can actually be a viable career. Hey, th- those are the people we come from. So how does God plan on changing the world with people like you and me around? How does he do that? Verse 27. But God chose the foolish things of the world. Who's that? Us. The foolish things of the world. To shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world. Who's that? Us. To shame the strong. He chose the lowly things. Who's that? Of the world to of the world. And the despised things. Who's that? Who's that? Thank you. Despised. He chose the things that are not. Who is that? Us, exactly. To nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. How did Christianity become so popular? It's a miracle. It really is. And it would be insulting if it wasn't so funny. That, that's how it goes. He chose dumb, poor, not very influential people, and he changes them. And one day we will look and we will say, oh, that must have been God, because that was not us. Paul goes on and he says, it is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God, that is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, it is written, Jeremiah 9.24, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. God, in Christ, revealed himself in simplicity, humility, death, shame, completely unexpected, 
And he continues to reveal himself to others through you and me. It's amazing. We are supposed to be those who love God and tell the story of Jesus by not just our words, but by how we live. That is how people will know the story. And we will not succeed because we are smart or noble or influential, but that God, through faith, does an unexpected work in us. I told you this before. Originally, the term Christian, it was a slam on people who followed Jesus. Like, oh, you're a little Jesus. And they went, "Uh, yeah, I'm supposed to be that. We are. But we're poor and we're simple and we're regular, and many of us are very unimpressive. But behind us stands God in his glory and God in his strength and God in his wisdom. And nothing is as it seems. Nothing. God does love us. He, he takes us as his kids. And the world is supposed to be a different place by how we live through his grace through us. And if you are not a Christian today, I will tell you that you will never have all your academic questions answered, all your philosophical questions answered, because God will not reduce himself to syllogisms and propositions and evidences, because God is bigger than that. G.K. Chesterton, he actually once said that we can either get God into our heads and our heads will explode because our heads cannot contain God, or we can simply seek to get our heads into heaven, our heads into God to get a peek. And that is what God does through Scripture and His Spirit and His Word. He allows us to get a peek of who He is and we become more and more the people He calls us to be. God does this amazing work on the cross, takes all of human history and whittles it down to one point that then goes out and touches the rest of human history. It is beautiful. It is wonderful. And, and every day that you study something like this, you come back with like 20 more things you never saw before. Because God is amazing in His wisdom and His grace and His kindness and His omniscience. He is amazing. And because God does these things, we are people that are supposed to respond. This morning, this morning, we actually will respond in worship. Our entire lives are supposed to be about worship. And this morning, we respond in worship by taking communion. Communion reminds us of his death. That you take that cracker and you break it, and you dip it in the wine of the grape juice, and the cracker reminds us of his body, which is broken for us. And the wine and the grape juice reminds us of his blood that was shed for us. At this moment, that infuses all of human history. We'll worship God through prayer. There'll be some deacons and elders in the back of the hallway. And if you are someone who's trying to reduce God to some philosophy or some codifiable thing you can put in a box, you need to go pray with them and talk to them because God will never fit in your box, ever. And if he did, that wouldn't be God. That wouldn't be God. If you, are, if you need to know Jesus, if you're thinking, man, I need to know this God, pray with them. They'd love to pray with you. Uh, the band's going to come up do a couple songs. And as they do, I invite you to take communion. I invite you to pray and ask God to reveal more and more to you what he has been doing, not only at the cross, but in your life from the very beginning. How he brought you to this place on this day for the purposes that he did. Because God is amazing like that. We're going to worship God through giving. There's offering boxes in the side wall and in the very back. And we give simply because God gave so much to you and I. So we give back to him. And then we encourage you guys to worship God through fellowship by hanging out with each other, getting to know some other people. Lunch is right around the corner. Invite somebody to go lunch with you. If it's me, it's got to be someplace cheap, okay? <laughs> or you're buying, that's how it works. Uh, you know, and you invite somebody to go with you. So you learn to have some of these relationships and these conversations that, that you should be having with other people. Worship is not just this. This is part of worship. This is, this is worship together, okay, as a body. But most of your worship is lived scattered outside of these walls and the people you come into contact with every day. Everything in your life is worship. Everything you do. 
how you eat your Cheerios, and how you go to bed at night. It's all worship. Our life is supposed to be all about Christ and what He has done. So we worship God because of what He has done. Let's pray. Father, this morning, I ask that You would help us to be a people who remember, remember Your grace and Your goodness and Your death and ultimately Your life for us. I ask that You, as our God, will remind us of the purpose behind Your death and the purpose for you restoring and giving life to us. I ask that we would be your kids and that we would live and walk in your grace and that we would humbly accept the things that you send into our lives as everything has been sifted through your hands. And we would be a people who understand and see through every circumstance to the faith and the God behind the circumstance of our lives because you can carry us through to be the people you call us to be. God, help us, teach us, train us, and convict us to be the people that you have always intended for us to be, living and walking as your children. Thank you for dying. Thank you for rising. Thank you for the power that is found in the cross and in your life given to us.